The following is a Hoop Bowl presentation. What is up, everyone? It's the Hoop Ball Clippers podcast. Brandon Marcus here. Hope you're having a fantastic day wherever you are as you listen to this podcast. Looking forward to today's show. We're going to have Robert Flom, the managing editor of Clips Nation, on the show. Going to talk to him a little bit about the Sterling tapes um, and just get his take on the season. I know he wrote an article recently about Landry Shamit, so I'll try and bring him up as well and uh, see what he's got to say about the season. A uh, big thank you before we get started to Isaac Lederock for the new beats to welcome us into the show. Big, big thank you. Don't forget you can follow us on Twitter at HootballClips. And make sure you go and rate and review the podcast on iTunes. Give us that five-star review. Mostly would be fantastic if you did that. Be greatly appreciated. And uh, also, don't forget, you can follow at HoopBallFantasy on Twitter. The new draft guide is out. So make sure you go out and get that. You'll get access to the Brew 150 when that comes out as well. So it's Robert Flom, the managing editor of Clips Nation. Looking forward to having you listen to him. And uh, he's going to be one of the guests that hopefully we'll have on throughout the season because he's somebody that follows the team well. He actually follows a couple of other teams that we'll talk about too. So without further ado, let's get into our conversation with Robert Flom. All right, so we add to our contacts here of all people that know Clippers, and we bring on Robert Flom, managing editor of Clips Nation. You can find him on Twitter at Rich Homie Flom, great Twitter handle by the way, and also at Clips Nation SBN is where uh, the Clips Nation stuff is. Um, he's Robert Flom. Robert, how are you, man? I'm doing great. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Great to have you on. Um, I just started, um, actually, I just finished today, the Sterling Tapes, um, the 30 for 30 documentary by Ramona Shelburne. Um, uh-huh. Saw you guys wrote an article recently about um, those tapes. Curious to get your take on that. First of all, before we even uh, started recording, you mentioned you haven't really listened a ton to it and not trying to revisit it. Is, is, explain that to me. Yeah, you know, when it was first announced, I just thought, I get it because there is lots of interest in that. You know, people are always interested in falls from power. People are always interested in this kind of skeezy stuff. But, I mean, it was a dark time for the Clippers. And even though it ended, obviously, with, you know, this this bright, shining light, which was Steve Ballmer and, you know, to a lesser extent, the rest of the Clippers front office and Doc Rivers and, and all that and, you know, the the maintenance of the Lob City era for another few years. Um, just at the time, it was really shitty. And, like, I just don't want to think about Sterling. I don't want to be reminded that, you know, he used to own the team, and you know, now they call them governors. But he was the owner. And I just don't really want to think about that stuff that much. I would much rather think about the future and the current Clippers team and how good they are and how fun they are, hopefully will be to watch. So, I mean... You know, part of the thing is also for me, I, I just really got into the Clippers for basketball. Um, I'm not as interested in, you know, off the court kind of things. Um, you know, certainly the new stadium is cool and there'll be, you know, talk about that. But I really just I like basketball. I like writing about basketball. I like talking about basketball. So for me, like, you know, I wasn't against the pod, but I there were, there were things that were more interesting to me. Um I know it's still too soon, but like, you know, a 30 for 30 on the Lob City years um, on the court and in the locker room would be much, much, much more interesting to me than the Sterling one. It was it was well done. You know, Ramona did a really good job, is impeccably researched. And 
you know, there were certainly some fun anecdotes, but it was just not really my cup of tea. Yeah, I'm, I would like to see a one on the 30 for 30 uh, Lob City 2 because there's so much behind the scenes that we just did not know about. Um, and I feel like we would love to know about like the actual dynamic between Blake and DJ and CP3 and who actually didn't like each other and who did like each other and whether they actually were upset that Austin was on that team um, and what the deal was with that Carmelo Anthony trade. I mean, there's so much to unpack with that. Um, but I want to get before we go deep into the Sterling stuff, um, I do want to get your background on I guess you're a Clippers fan because obviously you know the team well and you care about the team so when did you start becoming a fan and why the decision to start writing about the team so I became a fan um probably in like the late 2000s I'd say um honestly like I'm guessing a fair amount of Clippers fans I grew up like more of a Lakers fan I'd say not like a particularly strong one um and just kind of grew away from them because uh, you know, a lot of the fans are annoying. I really didn't like Kobe. I didn't like some of the other players on their team. Like, I just, you know, wasn't really a fan of them. And the Clippers were fun, and they were young, and, you know, I liked watching them. So I, I became a fan. Um, and, yeah, that was probably right around or before Blake Griffin was drafted. Um, you know, I do remember, like, Al Thornton and young Eric Gordon and all that. Um so that's probably, you know, 2008, 2009 is when I started getting into the Clippers. And, you know, I, I have to say, at least somewhat, I became more of a fan with Lob City um, just because it was more fun. They were more relevant. Um, so I, I wouldn't say I was necessarily bandwagon, but I think a lot of Clippers fans probably paid a bit closer attention after that. Um, and I started writing for the Clippers or for Clips Nation, not for the Clippers, uh, in 2014. And I really just did it because I liked the Clippers. I watched a lot of their games, and I felt like it would be a good extracurricular activity for me, really, more than anything. I didn't have some burning desire to be a sports journalist or become the next, you know, Adrian Wojnarowski or Zach Lowe. I mean, that's before Zach Lowe was big. But anyway, I mean, it was really just like a little opportunity for me. I never really thought it would be much of anything. I thought I'd write every once in a while and just, you know, about what I wanted to write about. And I've ended up, you know, writing hundreds and hundreds of articles and, you know, having thousands of Twitter followers. And it's all just really kind of surprising to me almost five years later. So that's kind of my background. All right. Well, I mean, that's pretty cool. Um, I I respect that, man. I mean, there's a lot of people that jumped on during the Lob City days. Yeah. And I mean, it makes sense. It makes a lot of sense. And circle back to the Sterling documentary and the 30 for 30 and just you can see why there weren't a lot of people that were fans of that team. I mean, he, the most fascinating part about it, I mean, there's a lot of fascinating parts, is that he's the one that helped Buss get the Lakers. And so he helps Jerry yeah. Buss get the Lakers. And then he is just jealous and envious of what he builds up with the Lakers being a hot commodity. And so he wants to buy a team. He ends up buying the Clippers, ends up moving them to LA, which I thought was very interesting that he ended up following the model that I believe the Raiders followed to get down here for that loophole to get him down here. Um, and I'm not going to spoil the whole thing, but it's just crazy to see how somebody could own a team for as long as he did that just did not care about the team. And I'm curious to get your take on that because yeah. it's so weird because I can't, even see that happening right now in the Adam Silver era where somebody cares so little about the team that they're working out at a community college or like a D2 school or something like that, and they don't even have an actual practice facility. It's mind-boggling to me, frankly. 
Yeah, I mean, the 80s were just, you know, it was just a different time in the league. Um, you know, it was a different time in professional sports in the United States and the world, you know, everything. Um, but certainly, I mean, the NBA now is way more popular. It's way more of like an actual business than it used to be. And so now, I mean, they thoroughly vet all these owners, like, will they actually care about the team? Will they actually spend money on the team? Obviously, I mean, if they have the money to pay for it and the owner is willing to sell it to them, you know, stuff can still happen. But I mean, generally speaking now, it's guys who are really dedicated because it's also a lot of money to pay for something. And if you don't care about, you know, NBA, why would you spend however billions of dollars now, um, you know, on, on this product that you don't care about? Back then, I mean, it was certainly an investment. Um but it was not quite the same. And just I don't think there was nearly the level of scrutiny on the owners. I mean, now in the social media age, everybody's connected. We can see what all these people get up to. Um, back then, you know, it was just a bunch of rich guys who probably lived on ranches somewhere who, you know, for a few times a year flew out to board of governors meetings or whatnot. And that was probably about it. So, yeah, things are just way different now. And I certainly don't think a Sterling would be able to buy a team in this day and age. Uh, but you never know. And uh, there's certainly like I think I said in, in the podcast I did on Clips Nation about the Sterling tapes, like certainly a lot of the owners now, I mean, they're they're not exactly Sterling, but a lot of them are certainly not, you know, chorus boys, um, you know, to to be that powerful and that successful. Um, you know, you can certainly still be a good person, but, um, you know, a lot of them have have probably done some pretty shady things themselves. So, oh, for sure, it is what it is. Yeah, I mean, for sure. There's every owner is not going to be Balmer. Every owner is not going to be Mark Cuban. I mean, and frankly, every owner doesn't need to be those guys. You don't need to be mm-hmm. on the court screaming at the referee or screaming and rooting for your team. It just doesn't need to be that way. But if you're going to be a guy like Donald Sterling, that's going to be sued as many times as you are behind the scenes for everything under the sun. I mean, they talked about how. Shelly and he, they tried to be pretend to be health inspectors going in and clearly racial profiling with their yep. apartment complexes and all these lawsuits against them. I mean, I can't even imagine that happening right now to an owner in the NBA with actual lawsuits against them that's showing how much of a blatant racist they have been. And it's crazy that it took until 2014 for this to actually matter. That's the part that really blows my mind. Yeah, I mean, it's tough because so much of this is, you know, not just legal based, but just like there was evidence of them doing all these things. But, you know, a lot of it was previously or, you know, things that didn't hadn't necessarily been talked about in a while. And this was fresh. It was on, you know, tape and it's during an era with player empowerment and with, you know, players kind of seizing the reins of control in the league. And it was kind of a perfect storm, whereas I think even like 10 years before, there certainly would have been backlash. But I don't know if he would have been forced out if that had happened in 2004. I mean, certainly Stern to Silver makes a difference. But even if Adam Silver had been the commissioner in like 2004, 2005, I really just don't know if the pushback would have been loud enough for him to get pushed out. I think it was like this confluence of social media, um, you know, greater awareness of this, um, you know, are more... You know, and I think for better, it's often used negatively, but a more PC um, landscape where that kind of stuff is frowned upon more than it would have been, you know, 15 or 20 years ago. And players who care more and feel like they have the power to speak up about these things. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I completely agree. I don't think 
you know, stuff like this would happen now. But I think it's also because, um, you know, not necessarily that people have changed, but just that it it just wouldn't be allowed to happen. Um, it would the pushback would be so quick and so severe and just end everything. Yeah. And you look at Donald Sterling and the affairs he was having and Shelly Sterling being OK with it and knowing that it was happening. Um, and then obviously V. Stiviano comes along. And for some reason, Shelly just that's the one that really pisses her off. And she because V is trying to just show off. She's trying to get rid of Shelly. That's probably the reason why Shelly hated her so much. <laughs> she, she's trying to get rid of her and have Donald just focus on V and that they can be together. And it's it ended up where Shelly was so fed up that the two just went at it. And it's such a weird dynamic that you can't really expect that to happen now with TMZ and as many cameras as there are around and as many gossipers and as many insiders as there are. And for it to happen um, under, right, I mean, right under Shelly's nose, obviously, with this V thing. What's your take on all that? Because it seems so weird to me that you would have Shelly at a game and then you would also have V at a game. And I just can't even imagine just that functioning in any sort of normal capacity. Yeah, I mean, to some extent, I think, for one, I mean, the Sterling seem like, outside of racist, they just seem like fairly weird people. Mm -hmm. um, but also, you know, I just generally think people at that level of wealth um, just operate very, very differently than normal people. Um, you know, they didn't necessarily marry. Maybe they did marry for love. Who, who knows? But I mean... You know, a lot of these things happen for other reasons and, you know, maybe there wasn't as much personal attachment or maybe they just understand so that being together would be, you know, better for them financially or in terms of reputation or whatnot. Um, so a lot of these things, I think, you know, kind of fly under the rug. There are a lot of indiscretions and people just kind of wave them over because, you know, it's all kind of politics and, and this kind of game that people play. So I think in that case, it's really just more about how wealthy um, the Sterlings were and just like, you know, if you have a couple hundred million dollars and maybe you don't really care for your husband that much anyway, uh, you know, maybe, you know, maybe it rubs you a little the wrong way, but maybe you don't care all that much if he has a mistress. Um, you know, certainly it's it's a weird way to think and a weird way to live. But, you know, I mean, certainly them showing up to games together is is very odd. But um, yeah, I mean, I just think their relationships and how they operate are just so different than your average person or even than a regular wealthy person. I mean, that's just a different level of wealth. Yeah. One takeaway I had from the podcast is that it tried to make Shelly Sterling into kind of this amazing human being when in reality, I mean, she's got to shoulder a lot of this blame because she was right there with Donald. She saw everything he yeah. was doing. She was allowing it. She was going into apartments pretending to be health inspectors. She was the one that was right there the entire time. So to give her credit because all of a sudden she decided to say, you know what? Yeah, go ahead and get the two doctors to say that he's incapable of uh, being just a functioning human. It just doesn't make sense that she's getting lauded when, frankly, she was right there for 30 years. Yeah, I think that was pretty easily the most distasteful part of the podcast. It it kind of tainted it a little bit for me because, you know, she Shelly Sterling is certainly no hero. She's very, very far from it. I mean, maybe she's not as bad as Donald, but, um, you know, she's certainly said and done a lot of racist things herself. Um, like you mentioned, she was with Donald for, you know, a long time. And, um, 
you know, it's just who knows what would have happened if this thing hadn't occurred. I mean, things would probably still be going absolutely as they had been. So I don't think this is like some big change of heart for her or, you know, some coming to moment. I think it was really, again, it was all just about politics and reputation and how things look. And she decided it would, you know, it was the appropriate thing to do and it would look best for her. Um, so really, I don't think it had anything to do with her morals or being like some sort of good person. I think it was really more, if anything, self-motivated. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't like her. I don't think she's done anything, you know, worthwhile of being praised, really. So that was certainly not a great angle. And the pod really tried to hit that pretty hard, and I was not for it. Yeah, me too. And I, I didn't realize that she was still able to come to all these games and that she was still sitting courtside yep. and that part of the arrangement when she sold the team was that she was able to get access to the food in the back and she was able to get courtside tickets and able to get tickets for her friends. I didn't realize that she came out on top as much as she did. I mean, apart from obviously, let's not forget, they got $2 billion out of this. Apart from the $2 billion that the Sterlings got, and I say Sterlings because somehow they're still back They're back together, even yep. though there was a time when they were separated, but they're back together, which shows how much they need each other and how much of terrible humans they both are that they came back together. Um, it just, I mean, it shows you that, frankly, this worked out okay for Donald Sterling. I mean, sure, now he is labeled as a racist, but frankly, he was labeled as a racist before. It just didn't matter. But now it matters in this era that we're playing in, and he, they were able to sell the team. They got $2 billion out of it. They don't need to worry about the team. Their return on the investment was incredible. And frankly, it's crazy that the Sterlings were able to just escape the way they did. Yeah, I mean, again, like, you know, and at the risk of sounding repetitive, I do think a lot of this just comes back to money. Like, you know, when you get, you know, let's say, I don't know how they split it, but let's say, you know, they split it a billion each. Mm -hmm. And if you have a billion dollars, I mean, you're generally not going to be stressed out about very, very much. And, and, you know, certainly, I mean, I think the reputation has taken a hit since then. But these are not people who really care about their reputations anyway. You know, if it was somebody who was conscious about the stuff and just kind of slipped up and it, it ruined them, uh, it would be a little bit different. But these are people, like, as you mentioned, who've had scandals and all these things and lawsuits permeate their lives for the past 30 years. So for them, I mean, yeah, this is a bigger blight on their name than usual, but they made a ton of money out of it. They're still extremely rich, and they're doing just fine. I'm not like anybody really cares. Um, but yeah, I mean, they made out of it just fine. I mean, people seem as if, like, they got rid of the team, so, you know, it was a, a loss for them. Really, it wasn't. And like we said at the very beginning, it's not like he was ever mm -hmm. really a basketball fan or an NBA fan or about making the Clippers good anyway. So it's not like it was some passion project that was torn away from him. It was a money sink. Um, you know, well, not a money sink. It was a money printing system for him that gave him a huge payday. So, yeah, I mean, I think they came out of it just fine. And, you know, it's, it's really too bad because honestly – you know, a lot of people think of them as racist now, but they were already were racist. People who were paying attention already thought they were racist. So really, not much has changed except for the fact that they are a billion dollars richer. Yeah, and frankly, it's it was a great story to follow, and the podcast was great. But then at the end, when you really just look back and you say, you know what, the Sterlings still got $2 billion out of it, and they really did not lose much because, frankly, they didn't care about the team and they didn't care about actually winning. I mean, that was very loud and clear that Don Sterling did not care about winning. 
And now it's in the hands of Steve Ballmer, who actually does care about winning. So in the end, I mean, it worked out for Clippers fans. But frankly, the fact that it lasts as long as it did is something that is um, a bit annoying. But I mean, it kind of is what it is. What did you do you remember when the team was for sale? Did you have um, any hopes that maybe the team led by Oprah Winfrey would be the one that would end up getting the team? Do you remember um, how you felt at the time? I'm trying to remember. Um, You know, I think honestly, at the time, I was still, like I mentioned, you know, I'm more interested in kind of the on-court stuff. Um, So really, I mean, they were still in the playoffs while this stuff was happening. Um, You know, and the tape leaked, and, you know, obviously they were going to protest Game 5. And... You know, they have the T-shirts and, I mean, the warm-up shirts which they rolled inside out and threw on the floor and all that stuff. I was more worried about that and, like, how it affect the Warriors. Um, you know, I was not necessarily, you know, part of Team Oprah, I don't think. At least I, I don't remember being that way. Um, all I really wanted was a group or a person or whatever who would just keep the team in L.A. Because, I mean, Clippers fans have always had this worry um, that – probably not move back to San Diego, but that they'd be taken somewhere else. And since the Supersonics left Seattle, I think Seattle's been the, the place that was dropped even before Balmer took over with his Seattle connections. Um, so I think really for me, it was just about, you know, an ownership group that I felt very confident would keep the team in LA because obviously I'm from LA. Um, I wanted to be able to go to games still and, you know, I wanted to keep the team where they were. So I think that was really the, the most important thing for me. I don't think I particularly had a rooting interest for any person or group specifically. Yeah, I think there was a big worry that Ballmer would take the team to Seattle. Mm-hmm. Um, but, I mean, kudos to him. I mean, there was a lot of rumors that he would do it, and he has kept the team here. He has worked hard for this team. He's put a lot of money into this team, and obviously they're going to get the new arena in Inglewood. So clearly he's invested in keeping the team here. Speaking of the team, let's talk a little Clippers basketball since you like those X's and O's and you like the actual basketball on the court. Recently, you wrote an article about Landry Shamit. I've been talking about him a lot this summer and curious to see what his role is this upcoming season, whether it's going to be a backup point guard off the bench, whether he's going to maybe start at the two with a maybe George and Kawhi at the three and four. Uh, what do you envision for Landry Shamit? I think the Clippers' best lineup will be with him starting at shooting guard or at least playing at shooting guard alongside George and Kawhi. I'm not sure how much the Clippers will want those two guys playing up a position. Um, I think naturally those guys are not really shooting guards anymore as they've aged a little bit. Um, you know, I lost a little bit of that lateral quickness. They were always kind of oversized for that position anyway. Uh, they were able to play it just because how great they are defensively. Um, I mean, obviously, both can still guard most shooting guards. I don't think that's really an issue. But I don't think it's that bad against most teams to play them at, at small forward and power forward. So I think that would probably be my ideal lineup. You know, maybe you don't use it to start the game against a team that plays big, like against the Sixers, for example, uh, where one of them would have to guard Al Horford and there would be the possibility of them switching on to Embiid fairly frequently. That is definitely an avoid situation. Um, you'd probably want to start bigger and put Jermichael Green in the starting lineup in that case, or maybe even Montrez Harrell alongside Zubat, but probably Green. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I think Shamit as the starter makes the most sense. I think George and Kawhi will need shooting to operate, and I think the extra ball handling capabilities will help. I mean, he can improve a lot there, but 
you know, for as great as PG and Kawhi are, neither of them is exactly, you know, top tier ball handlers or playmakers for others. So I think Shamit can help out a little bit there um, rather than starting again, green or Harkless or, or one of the bigger wings or, or stretch big men. Um, so that would probably be my preferred lineup, but I think, you know, having him off the bench and playing him with Lou and Trez and whichever the wings doesn't start, you know, like maybe Magruder and Harkless or whatever. I mean, that is just, that would be one of the best bench lineups ever. And it would be better than the bench lineup they had last year, which was one of the best benches ever. Uh, so there's a lot of ways to use them. I expect he will start at least a fair amount of the season though. What do you think about the point guard experience? I mean, do you think that that, that experiment is going to work? Um, and do you think that he's going to play point guard, frankly? I mean, because you have now, you have Sam Cassell on staff, you have Tyron Lue on staff, and you have Doc Rivers, who's a guard on staff as well. So you have a lot of guys that he can learn from. Do you buy into the fact that he's going to do a lot of ball handling, whether it be with the first unit or the second unit? I don't think so. Uh, not this year, anyway. I mean, I think, you know, again, Kawhi and PG aren't the greatest at that, but they're also guys who are at bottom kind of ISO scorers or out of the pick and roll. And to do that, they need the ball in their hands. They can both play off the ball, but they're going to have the ball a lot. Pat Beverly is certainly not exactly like a Chris Paul or Steve Nash type point guard, but also a guy who's a pretty decent uh, distributor, very sure-handed with the ball. He never turns it over. And then that's, you know, Lou Williams as well off the bench. So I don't particularly think Shamit will have the ball a lot. I mean, probably more than last year when he was almost exclusively a spot-up shooter and running off screens, but I don't really see him, you know, having the ball that much. I mean, if he plays off the bench, I could see him kind of being in the Ty Wallace spot um, last year where Ty would bring the ball up the court a fair amount and then just hand it off to Lou or get the offense into a, a set but wouldn't exactly control the rhythm of the offense. I could see that happening, um, but I don't think he's going to be running, you know, 15 pick-and-rolls a game from the top of the key. I don't think he's quite there. I think optimally that might be what he does, um, you know, like I wrote, if he can optimize that shooting off the dribble and improve his passing and playmaking a little bit, those types of players who can stretch defenses out with their pick and roll shooting are the most dangerous offensive players in the NBA right now. Um, and if he can become that, certainly that's that's the optimal position for him is kind of like a hybrid combo guard ball handler. What are your expectations for him? I mean, what type of player, how many points per game do you want to see from him? How many minutes per game do you want to see? points is tough it depends on the role i mean obviously i'd hope for double digits i mean i think like 12 or 13 is is pretty good my hopes for him are more you know at least this year if he doesn't have the ball a lot or more in like tertiary stats and just overall ability on the court like i want to see somewhat better and more consistent defense um i'd really like to see the skill sharpen so like you know take more of those off the dribble threes make reads a little bit quicker, make slightly more advanced passing. I'm not expecting a huge leap this year necessarily. I mean, I think he might have one in him. Um, but I think he's the kind of guy who was already good as a rookie and will probably make some some progress over the next year or two and then might have a big leap in year four or five. So I think, you know, maybe, you know, 12 points per game, a couple rebounds, a couple assists, and, like, I'm expecting efficiency through the roof. Uh, maybe not 50, 40, 90 because I don't think he's good enough finishing at the rim. Um, to get to that 50 mark, but I think he could shoot, you know, 45% from three on very high volume again this year. And, you know, if he can do that, then that's, you know, perfect. Yeah. One thing that we talked about with Justin is that he's got, 
his defense that a lot of people don't talk about. I mean, he did a really, really nice job on Steph Curry um, when he was asked to defend him during that series in the playoffs. And one thing that I've been talking about with several of our guests so far this summer is what we see the final five minutes looking like on the court. I mean, who's going to be on the court? Lou Williams is a guy that you knew was going to be there no matter what because you need his scoring. Now I'm not so sure that's the case because you have Paul George, you have Kawhi. My guess is you're probably going to close with a guy like Jermichael Green or Trez. And then the guard position, you're probably going to have Beverly for his defense. I don't know, maybe if you want to get Lou Williams in there or Shamit. Uh, What do you think is the ideal ending five? It obviously is going to depend game per game. No doubt about that. Yeah. But that being said, in most games, who do you see the five on the floor at the end? So, yeah, you know, like I, like you just said, it really depends. I mean, against a team like the Sixers, you might have even Zoo out there to guard Embiid. I mean, because you, you don't want Trez guarding him. You don't really want Jermichael Green guarding him. Certainly not Kawhi or PG. Uh, so you might have to have Zoo out there. Uh, the same might go for the Lakers, honestly, and Anthony Davis. Uh, though maybe Jermichael could handle him a little bit. And I think, obviously, you have PG and Kawhi. And then... I think more often than not, you still will see Lou out there. I think his ability to create as a passer um, is really underrated, and he's probably going to be the best passer and playmaker on the team next year, even though he's coming off the bench, even though his minutes will be down, his scoring will definitely be way down. I think he's still going to be kind of the leading assist guy on the team, maybe. Um, And I think you just kind of have to have him out there against most teams, unless he's getting targeted really ruthlessly or it's an off night for him so i think those three i think more often than not it will be trez instead of jamichael i mean i could certainly see jamichael closing games um but again i just think trez is a little just better to be quite honest um you know he's a better finisher he's a slightly better rebounder just plays with a little bit more force as a big man um so i think it's those four and i think the fifth spot is the one that's a bit more up in the air um you know i could see it being Beverly, I think he might be my top choice. Um, again, doesn't turn the ball over, plays defense, can hit threes. Shamit again, an option, great three-point shooter. You know, against certain players, he can he can be out there and do all defensively. And I think Green is probably the third option and going with a bigger lineup with him alongside Trez and then um, PG and Kawhi at the two and three. So I think it, it'll be, you know, PG, Kawhi, Lou, Trez, most of the time, and then the rotation of the other three guys. And, you know, honestly, there might even be nights where it's like Mo Harkless mm-hmm. if they want to go really wing defense heavy or, you know, maybe Magruder. I mean, I, I kind of doubt it's those two. But, I mean, there might be nights where that's the case. Um, so, yeah, that's probably – my ideal would probably be Lou, Bev, PG, Kawhi, Trez. A little undersized, but I think probably is the best mix of shooting – uh, defense and playmaking. It's a deep team. No doubt about that. I mean, the Magruder and Harkless, guys that we're not even talking about much, Jermichael Green, obviously. I mean, there are a lot of guys on this bench that are pretty solid players that have been starters for other teams. So it'll be interesting to see how the Clippers do throughout the season because they're obviously going to win a lot of games. They won 48 last year. The expectation is they'll win over 50 this year. PG is supposed to be out for who knows how long to start the season, perhaps maybe a month or so. Um, where do you think they end up in the West? Because obviously you have the Lakers, you've got the Nuggets, you've got the Jazz. 
you have some top-heavy teams like the Rockets. Where do you think the Clippers uh, end up when all is said and done? In terms of standings, I'd say third or fourth. Mm-hmm. Um, I think PG being out and Kawhi being load managed, no matter what the Clippers say, I think he's just going to sit games. I think that's a smart thing to do. Um, you know, I think they have a bunch of guys who were pretty healthy last year who, you know, fingers crossed they are again, but I wouldn't necessarily expect Pat Beverly or Lou Williams to be as healthy this year as they were last year. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think third or fourth in the conference is reasonable. I think the Nuggets and Jazz will probably be two of the top four seeds just because they're both deep and have good top-end talent and I think will just win a lot of games. I'm not necessarily more worried about them uh, than I am about other teams in a playoff series, but I could see them winning, like, you know, 55, 56 games, um, especially Denver, I, I think, might challenge for the top seed again. Uh, Houston, like you mentioned, is certainly an option. Um, you know, if Russ and Harden stay healthy, they're going to win a ton of regular season games just because those guys are that good. You know, how they'll operate in a playoff setting, I'm not sure about. Um, and you mentioned the Lakers. I mean, honestly, I mean, it's unfortunate because this whole DeMarcus Cousins thing is, is honestly really dark. Mm-hmm. Uh, but sneakily, I mean, he was one of their, like, two avenues for real upside this year outside of LeBron and Anthony Davis, and I mean, at this point, like, he might be suspended, like, they might cut him due to a PR hit. We don't really know, and if he doesn't play for them this year, one way or another, um, you know, he wasn't going to anyway because of the Achilles, but I mean, removing any possibility whatsoever of him playing next year, I just don't know who else they have on that team who's really going to step up in, like, you know, an average regular season game. They're going to make the playoffs um, I think in a playoff series, they might be the most threatening team because LeBron and Anthony Davis is obviously terrifying. But in terms of the regular season, I think they're probably going to be a lower seed now. Um, you know, they just don't have that much depth or talent on the rest of the roster. Um, so, yeah, if I had to pick a top four, it would probably be Nuggets, Jazz, Rockets, Clippers in some order. Interesting. I don't think that people realize that the Jazz aren't that, as deep as we think. I mean, once you get past their starting five, they don't really have anything on the bench that you want to write home about, which is interesting because I had the same exact thought about the Jazz. And then on the Hoopball show, we were going team by team to see where we thought each player was going to end up, if they're going to end up top 100 by the end of the year. And their bench isn't that good, which is something that is might be exposed later on. I think they'll end up getting maybe a buyout guy or two, but guys like Raul Neto... And just their bigs, I don't, they don't have much behind in the bigs. It, it doesn't seem like a team that is going to be that great. But Denver and Utah obviously have that built-in home court advantage um, with the altitude. So I think that definitely does help them a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, people are probably overrating the Jazz a little bit. I mean, I personally just love Ed Davis. I mean, I think he's not as good as Derek Favors was for them. Um but I think he'll be really good for them as, as a backup for Rudy Gobert. Yeah. Uh, Royce O'Neal is, is, a, is a nice bench piece. I do think, you know, ball handling-wise, like you mentioned, Neto is not ideal. Um, actually, I don't think Neto's on the team anymore. Yeah. I'm the roster. I think he's somewhere else. Um, you know, they are relying a lot on Dante Exum, who I'm not a particular fan of. And, I mean, they're also going to have the Jeff Green experience, which, you know, all, you know, all luck to them. Yeah. Uh, but... You know, I think just having even Davis and O'Neal along with their starters is 
is good enough that they'll probably win 50 games, I would say. Yeah. Uh, because they won a lot last year. They got better. Um, you know, Gobert and Mitchell should be a bit better as well. I mean, Gobert's entering his prime. Mitchell is still in his development phase. So, I mean, I think they should be really good. I mean, I think, again, if I had to bet on any team to get the one seed, I would probably bet on the Nuggets and then maybe second on the Rockets, though. They are extremely top-heavy. So, you know, if Harden misses 20 games, then, I mean, they could be in real trouble, honestly. Yeah, but. yeah I was thinking the Nuggets, too. I, I think the Nuggets are just a team built for the regular season. Um, so I'll be curious to see where they end up. You bring up Ed Davis, and obviously he's a great piece to have off the bench. Recently, the Clippers have been rumored to be working out Wilson Chandler. Or not Wilson Chandler. I don't, I don't know why I said Wilson Chandler. I think I saw some news earlier about Wilson Chandler. Um, Joe he Johnson got suspended for PED. Yeah, there you go. Um, former Clipper, Wilson Chandler. There you go. Uh, Joe Johnson, big three um, beast. Joe Johnson. <laughs> um, what do you think is the possibility of him winning with the Clippers? Because I've said all along, I think the Clippers need more of a backup big or a backup point guard than another wing. That's what I've been saying, too. I mean, I don't really see the need for him. I mean, you know, there are also there were some rumors out there today or yesterday about how they're they have a deal worked out for Iguodala already, which I mean, I'm not sourced about this. So, you know, I'm not going to doubt anybody's sources. I don't necessarily think that's set in stone that that's going to happen. I mean, I think the Clippers are certainly trying to get Iguodala. And if they did like an Iggy for, you know, Mo Harkless swap. Uh, you know, Iggy would function more as a point guard, really, on this Clippers roster. So in that case, it would make sense to add Johnson as more of a big wing. Um, because at this point, honestly, he's more of a power forward than anything else. I mean, he's he's a bit undersized there, but he's really too slow to guard perimeter players anymore. Um, it doesn't make a ton of sense for me. I do think if that kind of swap happens, it makes a little bit more. Um, you know, if they don't necessarily think that they can rely on Harkless or Magruder for offense um, and games when Paul George and Kawhi are out, which is a fairly reasonable assumption. Johnson could still be a hedge in that regard. Um, you know, let's say in the first month of the season, PG is out and Kawhi rests a game. Would all the offensive burden have to fall on Lou Williams? I mean, I don't know if they want to rely on a 38-year-old Joe Johnson, but he still should be able to create his shot against a lot of teams. So, you know, he could be a very situationally useful guy. But yeah, I mean, I I wouldn't be a huge fan of it, though at the same time, Joe Johnson winning a ring with the Clippers would be would be pretty cool. Oh, I miss those days of the Phoenix Suns with uh, Joe Johnson and Steve Nash and Amari Stoudemire and Boris Dia. That was a that was a good team back in the days. Um, before we let you go, you cover one more team. That is the uh, Portland Trailblazers. What do you think about their team this year? I'm not a huge fan, but then again, I haven't been a huge fan of the Blazers roster like the last three years, and they always end up making the playoffs and doing better than I think. Um, they're almost, I mean, we'd say they're they are not Spursian yet because the Spurs have been doing this for, you know, 20 years and have won championships along the way. Um, I kind of just don't doubt them as much anymore uh, just because really I think it all comes down to how awesome Damian Lillard is. I just... Eh. He's kind of corny with how much he talks about how little shine he gets, but I think he's kind of right. Um, he's really, really, really good. Uh, the rest of the roster, again, like especially with Nurkic out for a lot of the season, I just don't really see it. And McCollum is very good, but he's not an all-star level player, I don't think. Uh, he just doesn't do enough besides score. And the rest of the roster, it's like Rodney Hood, you know, Kent Bazemore, Hassan Whiteside. I mean, these aren't bad players, but they're not great players either 
Um, so I think a lot of their season will really come down to can Dame stay healthy, uh, which so far in his career he has been very healthy. And then how do their young guys progress? I really do like Zach Collins a lot. I think he will take a big step forward this year. So I think they'll be pretty good. But, you know, I think they're going to be more, you know, lower seed, like seventh or eighth seed, maybe like 45, 46 wins this year. Uh, I think they'll certainly take a step back from last season. Should people draft Hassan Whiteside in their fantasy basketball drafts or stay far away? Mm, oh, <laughs> I would stay away. <laughs> that was a big, um, that was a big, oh, uh, no. Like, uh, that was just a big no. Yeah, I don't think anybody should ever be excited or really try to draft Hassan Whiteside. Like, if he's there and you need rebounds, like, you know, sure. Like, he's probably get you double-digit rebounds and, like, Probably double-digit points, but, like, free-throw shooting, like, not there. No assists. Probably, I can't remember off the top of my head, probably not many steals. So, I guess he's draftable, but I would not I would not try to draft him. It's, like, just one of the most meh options in the league, probably. Yeah, yeah I think it's a valid point. And you bring up Collins and curious to see what they do with his minutes. Well, this has been a blast. I really appreciate you coming on. Robert Flaw, managing editor of Clips Nation. You can follow him on Twitter at Rich Homie Flom, And you can also follow Clips Nation at Clips Nation SBN. Anything else to promote, Robert? Not really. Like you mentioned, I had the Shaman article uh, yesterday, which uh, took a lot of time because I'm working now and I just don't have as much time to write. Um, but yeah, no, nothing really. It's still the off season, So, you know, we're talking about the Sterling tapes and, you know, who might start uh, rather than actual basketball. So I, I really don't have too much going on, but I'm excited. You know, the preseason is about a month away and, uh, you know, I guess, you know, preseason content and stuff will kick off shortly. So, uh, look out for, you know, probably divisional previews and stuff like that coming soon. But, yeah, thanks for having me on, man. Of course. And you're on the East Coast, so uh, best of luck staying up for those li- <laughs> for those for those games. It is going to be extremely rough. 10.30 to 1 o'clock in the morning. Good luck staying up till 1 o'clock in the morning because, uh, yeah, you're going to need it, Robert, man. It's it's going to be tough. But well, are you going to drink a lot of coffee? What's the play? <sighs> I mean, I am a coffee. I'm a coffee addict, so yeah, it's it's probably gonna be coffee, maybe some caffeinated tea. I'm a big tea fan too. It's gonna be cold. Some hot tea will do me well, but yeah, it's just gonna be it's gonna be lots of caffeine, and then just praying that it doesn't keep me up too late and I can actually get some sleep before work. But you know, I do I do like it out here. I love California. I like it out here as well, but. The time difference is just so rough for watching and writing about the Clippers. It's it's going to be brutal. Yeah, the West Coast is the best coast for sports watching. There's no doubt about that. Robert, hope to have you on throughout the season. Appreciate you joining the show. Yeah, of course, man. Thanks. All right, there he goes, Robert Flaw. Tremendous guest. Hope you enjoyed that. Good content. Joe Johnson, Sterling Tapes, Landry Shamit. Uh, make sure you head over and read his stuff at Clips Nation. SBN is the Twitter handle. Uh, Clips Nation obviously has a lot of good content. Man, he's going to be up late. He's going to be up really late. That's tough. It's never fun watching the West Coast teams when you're on the East Coast. I've done it before, and especially during the playoffs. Games start at like 1045, and then obviously there's commercials. They probably don't end till 115, 120 in the morning. It's really brutal. There, There is an East Coast bias against West Coast teams because, frankly, it's tough to stay up beyond 1030 for a normal human being, 1030, 11 o'clock. And then the games are starting and you're not able to watch teams like the Dodgers and the Angels on the West Coast in baseball or the Lakers and the Clippers. It, it just is mind boggling how we haven't figured out a better way 
for the West Coast to get a little more love, but hopefully one day. Man, I got to tell you, though, he's going to need that coffee, and make sure you get your coffee. Hawaiian Isles, Icona Coffee, tremendous coffee. You can look at, for their stuff on Amazon, a proud sponsor of all hoop ball content. You can follow me on Twitter, at BDMarcus. Let me know who you want to have on the show. Would be happy to have you. Tell me who you want, because I want the listeners to be happy, and I also want you to be happy by, you know what? Let's do a five-star review. Five-star review. Rate and review the podcast on iTunes. It means a lot to us. Hoopball Clippers is the podcast. At Hoopball Clips is the Twitter handle. I'm Brandon Marcus. Have a fantastic rest of your day wherever you are. And we'll talk to you next time on the Hoopball Clippers podcast. This has been a Hoop Bowl presentation.